I've been given the uh, the privilege to introduce uh, Pastor Larry Stocksteel, and uh, that's not a hard thing for me to do because he's been my pastor. I got saved when I was 30 years old, uh, July 24th, 1991, at Bethany World Prayer Center. I was uh, about 20 months old when we started life groups. I was one of the original life group leaders at Bethany, original 54 groups that started in a home and and uh, then they asked me to come on staff as a pastor. I was only saved three and a half years. I didn't know what a pastor was, and now I were one. And uh, Brother Hank Hannigan asked me, he said, Brother Lane, what do you think about this? And I said, training ground for Abbeville. It's the only reason I'm here, because I was saved two months and started dreaming of Abbeville. And what I'd like to say about Pastor Larry Stocksville is not just his incredible devotion to the purity of the Word, but there's another aspect to his leadership that a lot of people think about, maybe heard, but didn't experience. But I was graced with that privilege. And that's that he had the leadership to put godly men around him. Men like Billy Hornsby, who I sat at his feet every single week for two and a half years after I got saved. Men like Chris Hodges that spoke into my life and Rick Zachary, who's been around the world how many times we don't even know. And that heritage that was passed down to Brother Larry from Brother Roy. And some of y'all heard a little bit about Brother Roy last night, but I'm going to tell you what I got from Brother Roy. His story when Bethany first started was this. He come out and he got down the plank road in the Holy Ghost. So he just got the Holy Ghost not long. And he said, the Holy Ghost told him, turn right. He said, I'm going to obey. Then he told him, turn around. And there was a for sale sign there. And the Holy Ghost said, buy this house and start Bethany Baptist. Brother Roy got his paperwork together and went down to the bank. And the banker said, I'm sorry, sir. You don't make enough money to buy this house in three acres. And Brother Roy said, the Holy Ghost gave him a word. He didn't even know if it was real. He'd never heard it before. He looked at the banker and said, what if we subdivide? And the banker said, I didn't think of that. We could subdivide out two acres and sell it to the church and we could sell you that house in one acre and Bethany was birthed off of a blind trust in the Holy Ghost. That is a mantle that was on that ministry. It was on Brother Larry. It was on the men that were there. There's several men here that's come up under that ministry and are still walking in that mantle now. And I thank God for a man of God who's willing to walk unashamedly in the power of the pure gospel and trust the Holy Ghost. Will y'all please help me welcome Pastor Larry Stockstill. Hey, what a blessing to be with you guys again tonight and that you got delivered from the International Festival and you're here. How many of you here? Wave at me if you're here. Hey, you know... Uh, what a blessing last night was. I came back this morning had an opportunity to be with a number of the pastors. How many of you pastors are back tonight? Raise your hand if you're a senior pastor from me, Katie. Let's give a hand clap to these guys. Come on. Stand up, guys. If you're a pastor, stand up. We want to honor you. Look at them. Yeah, back there. All right. You may be seated, brethren. And just so you'll know this, I just made a little mental note to myself to uh, tell you that Model Man is a curriculum that churches are going through, and Pastor Chris Hodges there in Birmingham has started 
500 uh, model man groups, six weeks long. There's a video that guys can show. You know, you don't have to teach. All you got to do is just, just push a button and, and play it, and guys can do that anywhere. And then there's 50 more Bible lessons after that that they can go through together as a group. But we really feel the power of small groups is kind of the secret to how to change America. And we're losing our country, you know, pretty quick. And I would not be in Lafayette tonight if I did not believe we could change America through changing men. That's the only reason I'm down here. Because the Lord told me we're going to lose our nation without men standing up and becoming models and multiplying themselves by mentoring teams. So I think I think we can change our country. I'm giving 10 years of my life to it. I believe if the Lord tarries, he's given me a race to run and a lane to be in. And I'm going to run it. And I want to know if anybody's in this with me to change the nation. Come on, stand up on your feet. Hey, give me all you got on this little thing right here. Okay, I want you to say this out loud. Say, I am a model man. I am a model husband. I am a model father. I am a model worker. I am a model servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am a model citizen of the United States of America. Come on, let's give the Lord praise for our nation. Come on, man, I want to hear you really give it up for America. That's right. Now, you know, a lot of guys say, well, I didn't know this was about America. Well, it really, really, really is. That's the end game. We're wanting to change our nation, 320 million people, and it, it, can, it ain't going to be changed by Washington. We can put 10 different people up there. What's going to happen is when men rise up and say, look, Lord, start with me, change my life, use me to impress thousands. You know, there's a guy in South Africa that raised potatoes. And that man, I don't know if you've seen his little video, but that guy got on fire for a guy who raised potatoes. And he said, Lord, use me. You know, he ended up having half a million men on his potato field every year. And he was preaching the word of God to them. So you don't ever know. So lift up your hands. Let me pray for you. Father God, I just thank you that if you can use a potato farmer, that Lord, you can use me. You can use every man in here. And Lord, we don't need a, a, a guy in Washington to change us. We need the power of the spirit of God to blow, Lord, like a wind across this nation. And let it begin here in Lafayette, Lord. Let right here in Lafayette some men rise up and say, this is my nation, and we're not going to lose it. We're going to keep it, and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have a country where there's purity and peace and joy. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's clap our hands for the Lord one more time. Come on, somebody. Yeah, that's right. All right, you may be seated. So all you pastors, you get out there, Carl Everett will tell you how to implement this into your church. We're not interested in selling books. We're interested in saving our country. Lots of books out there. Okay, now here, here's, here's the deal. I'm moving in this direction tonight. I'm going to talk to you about your family because you're never, ever really going to be powerfully effective until you can have a great marriage. And man, have I ever done everything I could to mess my marriage up. I mean, I've, I've worked at it real hard and praise God. The grace of God has given me 38 years with this beautiful 
lady named Melanie. And uh, this next month be 39 years. And, you know, I just feel like that we talked to the pastors this morning that public success requires private success. And when that door is closed and you walk in your home, you know, sometimes things are not like they are appearing in public. You can have a beautiful front lawn. Everything's nice. And, but on the inside, there's a war going on. And some of you have real tremendous problems in your marriage right now. And, uh, you know, you just, you, you don't know, man, it, if you're going to make it. And you probably came here tonight to get a little bit of help. And I think I'm going to help you. So, you know, you probably need something to write with. There's a couple of rules that I learned about women. Here's just a couple of things I learned. You know, these would be great to write down somewhere. Number one, never argue with a tired woman. You agree with that? And number two, never argue with a rested woman. That's deep, and that's, that's so profound. Okay. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Boudreau when he went to this marriage counselor with his wife. He was having real problems, and um, Marie did all the talking. Boudreau just sat over there, and the counselor started getting kind of frustrated, so he jumped up to his feet. He ran over there. He grabbed Marie off the couch. He hugged her and he put a big kiss right on her lips. And then he set her back down on the couch and he put, sat down in his chair. He said, Boudreaux, he said, that is what you need to do every day of the week. Boudreaux looked at the doctor and he said, now, doctor, he said, I think I can get her here on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but I can't get her here every day of the week. Everybody say, help that brother. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you, you know, like real marriage counseling. It, it ain't going to cost you anything. You know, you can, you can take it, leave it, or you can say, well, that's just that, that guy up there. Now, I've made seven major mistakes in my marriage. There's at least six of them. One of them I'm just throwing in because I've seen so many guys have issues with this. But at least six of them I've made mistakes in. So I'm not coming at you tonight from this, you know what, he has his perfect marriage. They've, one guy told me we've never had an argument in 40 years. I thought, dude, you a liar. That's all you are is a liar. Because you don't live with somebody without having a little tension every now and then, right? Come on, say a better amen. Now, the ladies are not here. So I'm going to give you from First Peter chapter 3 a few verses where the Apostle Peter, who we know from Scripture was married, Jesus uh, ministered to his mother-in-law. So if you got a mother-in-law, you know you got a wife. So Peter is the guy that can probably say better than anybody what it is to be married. And here he said, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that's if, if your husband, you know, is like a total reprobate, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see, verse 2, your respectful, that's a good word, and pure conduct. Now, notice in that verse, I'm not going to read any more about wives because it goes on with about six verses to women. The first six verses of the chapter are to the wives. In fact, it even reminds them that Abraham's wife, Sarah, 
obeyed him, calling him Lord. Now, I am not recommending that you go home and demand that your wife call you Lord from now on. She going to Lord you all right, right upside the head. Like one guy said, I put my foot down, all right, I got it bit off. So I, 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 I know about all that. But, you know, here's the deal I always tell wives. They're not here, but if I had the opportunity, I'd tell them what your husband needs is respect. He has to have respect. In fact, a survey that was taken among men showed that 70% of men said they would rather be respected than loved. Now, how about that? I mean, women would be the exact opposite. They don't care about respect as much as a man. For a man, respect is like everything. So if a woman disrespects her husband, believe me, you give her and I give my wife plenty of opportunities to disrespect me. She's going to have hundreds more before we go to heaven. You know, if I, she tells me to put out the garbage and I forget to put the garbage out maybe. And so she comes in from, from Walmart and the garbage cans are being emptied by the neighbors, you know, their garbage cans, but ours is not out there. She says, he forgot to put the garbage out. So she gets in and she's looking for me. So she walks in and there I am laying on the couch or there you are laying on the couch with a remote control in your hand. You're sound asleep. Your mouth is wide open and your belly is hanging down, touching the floor. And she walks through there and she's mad at you. And the devil says to her, look at who you married. Look at that guy. He ain't nothing but worthless, that's all. And the devil's working on her, working on her. The devil works on your wife day and night to get her to disrespect you. So I tell ladies, I'm balancing this because most of this is going to be to men tonight. But I tell them, your husband only needs one thing from you. And that is R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Come on. A little respect. Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some respect. That, that, and, and there's a respectful way for her to talk to you. And I'm going to talk about it tonight. But she, you've got to have that. In fact, there's a book called Love and Respect. And in that book, it says that men only need one thing. That's respect. Women only need one thing. That's love. From Ephesians 5.33, it says that the wife see that she respects her husband and that the husband see that he loves his wife. So there's only really one big deal about marriage. And for the woman, it is, come on, say the word I've been talking about, respect. So you get that in your brain, that that's the thing that she needs. And you read the first six verses of Peter, 1 Peter 3, and you'll see that. But now it comes to you. Likewise, verse 7, husbands. Now, look at that verse. He gives six verses to the women, only one verse to the men. Men like headlines. Women like details, okay? So here we go. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, you've got you to understand some stuff. If you don't understand it, you're in trouble. You're going to be like a blind dog in a meat house. You're wandering around. You know it's out there, but you can't find it. Showing honor, everybody say honor, honor, to the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, I saw some weightlifting women in Kazakhstan on TV. 
And these ladies were hoisting 450 pounds up over their head. Women were doing that. I praise God, I have a weaker vessel. Because I'm talking about these women had thighs, looked like thunder thigh. Their, their thighs were as big as my waist and their arms were huge and they were hoisting weights. So live with your wife as the weaker vessel. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. My brothers. Did you know that if you don't honor your wife, if you don't do some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, your prayers are not making it past the ceiling. And you can pray a day. You can pray 21 days. You can fast till you look like a refugee from a concentration camp. And you ain't going anywhere. And finally, the Lord will say to you, uh, <clears throat> your wife. Now, I'm, 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 I'm giving you clues about that because that's what Peter said. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Seven mistakes that I've made. I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. It would be a good idea if you wanted to write them down. Are there? This is one of the chapters in the book, chapter 7 in the Model Man book. First three chapters are about character. Second three chapters are about consistency, your pace of life. And the third three chapters are about your connections. That's your marriage, your kids, and your legacy. So here's marriage. Seven mistakes that a man makes. Number one. I made a mistake in not knowing that my wife could be dealing with financial insecurity. Now, I'm going to give you these. And we got some little notes up there. That's pretty cool. Okay, financial insecurity. You know, I found out something about men and that we are basically secure. Now, women don't like me to use this word insecurity. You know, I'm not insecure. I'm not insecure. Well, really, women are, are not really insecure. They lead countries. They lead corporations. They, you know, so women can be very secure. But when things go bump in the night, and every now and then that happens in our house. There's a big noise in the house. Melanie wakes up. She wakes me up. She said, I just heard something loud in the house. And I lean over and I say, yeah, go check it out. Is that what I say? No. I get up out of bed like Barney Fife, man. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting on lights. I'm going through the living room. Now I'm going through the den. Now I'm getting in the kitchen. And I'm looking around. I see some dishes in the sink. And then I hear them. They shift again. And they make this big loud noise. So I go back into the bedroom. I say, cut all the lights off. I say, baby, it's all right. There's just some dishes in there. And she leans over to me. And she hugs me in the bed. She says, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, see, that, that, that proves what I'm talking about. I don't ever see women jump up and have the same feeling that a man has to protect his family. Now, I, I used to not understand why some of the most beautiful women in the world married some of the ugliest men I've ever seen. I couldn't understand it. Now I understand it, Pastor Todd. They feel a security from that man. Back in Genesis, when they sinned, God said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I think God just kind of programmed them to be vulnerable. If they didn't feel that vulnerability, they wouldn't need a man. 
they would go on in their life and never need a man. But they need a man. They want to get married. They're looking for a man. I heard a song riding over here tonight. Some lady said, get rid of your bozo and find your Boaz. Women are looking for a strong man. They're looking for a guy. When they marry you, they're thinking, this man's going to provide security for me, for my kids. There's going to be a home. There's going to be a car. All of this stuff. Okay, so when it comes to money, men see money differently than women. We are very secure about money, guys. We don't worry about money. We make the house payment. We don't worry about it for another 30 days. <laughs> or at least 29. We don't, we don't even think about it. But you watch this. Well, now, uh, uh, we got that house payment off. Where's the next one coming from? You say, same place that one came from. 29 days from now. Well, then she'll say, well, where are we going to get the one three months from now? You say, woman, what's your problem? I'll have the money when I need the money. That's the way we all tick. That's... That's how men think. They think, it ain't no problem, man. I get money. I find it. I'll get it. I'll work for it. I'll do something. I'll sell something. We'll get it. Don't worry about it. But she's always feeling vulnerable all the time. What if we don't make the house payment? We'll have to move. I'll have to pull the kids out of the Christian school. I, I won't be able to get my car so I can go to work. I can't buy any clothes. And she's always thinking, thinking, thinking the worst possible scenario. And you're always thinking the best possible scenario. Oh, it's going to all work out, man. Don't worry about it. She's not a man. She's a woman. And here's why you, what you need to do to solve this, brothers. Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, said it, not me, that everybody needs a three-month emergency fund. If you happen to lose your job, or if something happened, God forbid, you were injured, or you this, or your air conditioning compressor goes out, that can cost you a couple of thousand. Or the brakes go out, or all your whole set of tires, or something happens, and now suddenly... You need money. You need cash. And Ramsey says, if you would take your salary, multiply it times three, three months of salary, put it in the bank, you leave it there, and you only dip into it in an emergency, and then you fill it back up again. Well, I didn't ever save money. I didn't know any reason to save money. I had such security about money. Well, once I put that money in the bank, and I have it there now, well, this Melanie has never, she doesn't care about money. But I noticed this, ah, this deep breath that she took. All the worry, the stress of the future was gone. And now anything I can do to take financial pressure off my wife. You say, well, I could never save three months of salary. It may take you two years like it did me. I had to sell this and get rid of that and not buy that. And I put it in my account, put it in my account, and now I got it there. And I ain't taking it out either because it took me a lot to get it in there. But you can't believe the difference it makes in your marriage when you have a wife who's financially secure. And by the way, if you don't have any life insurance, you need to get some after this conference. Get you a little term policy, cost you about $15 a month. Because you say, well, I don't know, man, I don't need insurance. Well, you don't think you're going to die. You know you're going to die. 
That's it. That's going to happen. Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. So if you happen to die before your wife, she gets the financial benefit of it and she's able to live and she doesn't have to go to Walmart and go get buggies out of the rain to get you, you know, keep herself going. So yes, anything you can do to provide financial security. The second thing I learned, and that was my first mistake. I solved that one with three months of savings. Now here's the second one. Loneliness. Women feel lonely. And you say, well, how can she feel lonely, man? I come home every night. I'm there. Are you really there? I know your big old body is there when you walk in the door. But is your mind there? I had a problem with that. I was so busy running two big campuses, 6,000-seat auditorium here, 2,400-seat here, 100 acres there, 80 acres there, TV station, radio station, Christian school with 600 students, mission work all over the world, meeting with the governor every week, on and on and on. And it just, it just was everywhere. I had details, and I had issues, and I had situations. And sometimes I had a situation. You know what that is. Big difference in a situation and a situation. And it all was up here in my brain, and it moved all the time. So I walk in the door, hey, baby, how's it going? Good to see you. My brain is still working on some problems in my mind. Shaking my head, I hug her, kiss her. Uh, You know what? And I'm moving around. She wants to talk. Now, I learned something about ladies. Women like to talk (coughs) 25,000 words a day. Give me one of those little bottles of water if you got. Thank you right there. Women like to talk 25,000 words a day. And I understand that men, it's about 10,000 words. So you're off at work and you use up all your 10,000 words. Well, she's at home with three little kids maybe. And all she says is stop, eat, sleep. And so she's got 22,000 words left. You walk in the door and your brain is preoccupied. And she is super interested to talk. And she has nobody to use those words up on but you. Now, then you walk over to the couch. You turn on 500 cable channels. You turn on your laptop. You turn on your smartphone, your iPad mini. You put up the newspaper wall, and so you're home. Yeah, physically, you have arrived. But in terms of companionship, your your company, I mean, you could run off a burglar if necessary, but in terms of companionship, it ain't happening. And it may not have been happening for a long time. And every day, she's (laughs) he's home. I want to talk to him. I got to say something. And she'll sit down by you on the couch and you're, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, right, mm-hmm. Brain's over at the office still. You're entertaining yourself with five different sources of entertainment. And the next thing you know, she she's talking and you ask her a question and she says, I just told you that two minutes ago. And that's when she busts you and she realizes you ain't even listening to me. And she tells you that. You're not listening to me. Has your wife ever told you that? Raise your hand if your wife said, every hand in this building is up. See, that's our problem. Our brain out there. Brothers, our big body's there, but our brain is somewhere else. We've just become professional uh uh-huhs. 
Uh-huh. Come on, say, uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? And she's lonely. I had a friend, Rick Zachary, he's in the Surge Project, plant churches in India. And Rick went down to Bali for his 30th anniversary. They're in a hotel there, ordered breakfast in bed. And man, they got talking about their marriage and about their kids and about, you know, their 30 years as a couple. You know what time they got out of bed? They never looked at the clock. They talked and talked. They looked over the clock. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. They're still in their pajamas. Eight hours. They've been sitting there talking. See, they've been so long from having a real conversation that they had to catch up eight hours to even get it in. Now, let me just... Let me just tell you how critical this is. There's a great book by Matthew Kelly called uh, Seven Levels of Intimacy. And Dr. Kelly says that the lowest level of conversation is just facts, weather, job. And there's seven different levels like opinions and fears and dreams and all the way up to the top level of intimacy. A woman wants to go all the way to that top level of conversation with you. It is not going to happen with you changing channels every 15 seconds. You got to turn it off. I never watch TV unless it's with my wife, with one exception, and that is sporting events that she says, that's awesome. I like you to do that. Go do that. I don't, I don't watch. And you know, I believe the Holy Ghost wants me to watch basketball and football. Come on, raise your hand if you believe that. But see, my wife and I, we yes, we do take walks. Yes, we do sit in our recliners drinking coffee and talking in the mornings. And I and I learned, you know, how lonely a woman can be. And and I'm I'm just telling you, if I could interview your wife alone, you wouldn't believe it. I bet eighty percent of them will say, I'm so lonely, I don't know what to do. That's why you come home one day and there's a note on the counter. She says, I'm gone. You say, well, how could she leave me? Well, it's over the years where your brain has been elsewhere. Your conversations are meaningless to her. She can't discuss the deeper things that are going on in her heart and her life without you being like a mechanic, solving all her problems in one sentence. Here's your problem. Do this. Well, that's not what she wants. She wants to articulate 22,000 words a day to you. You say, I don't want to hear 22,000 words. Well, you should have never got married. (laughs) Would you say amen? amen? Number three, a woman is unhappy because of a lack of routine. A lack of routine. Now, my brothers... I, I I really don't like routine all that much. I'm not one of these highly disciplined guys. Maybe you are. Maybe you really regimented everything. I'd be the same exactly. Way. I like stuff to be able to change up, and I'm spontaneous. Hey, let's go over here. Hey, let's let's go spend the night over here. Let's let's. So I'm a, I'm not a routine guy too much, but my wife is very much routine, and I found out now that women are far more routine than men often. Men like to be spontaneous and free, but women, they like stuff like they can predict when it's going to happen. Now, even like what you're going to eat for breakfast and how, when you're going to do it. So Melanie and I usually take a walk sometime during the day, a couple of miles or a mile or 
but we did it a lot in the early morning. So that was a part of our routine. And then we'd come back and we'd always have cereal for breakfast. She loves cereal. She loves to get it out and put it on the table and all the bowls and the spoons and the milk. And, and she loves all that. I don't even like cereal, to be quite honest. I like a hot breakfast. And I said, Melanie, can we have a hot breakfast? She said, if you want a hot breakfast, you need to set your cornflakes on fire. (laughs) Shake your right hand if you feel the anointing on that now. So I just went on with it, man. I've been going down with that cereal. I went down with it this morning. I, I really don't like it all that much, but it's part of our routine. And we make coffee together the same way. Same two cups. She likes to be in the same two cups. I got a model man mug. She, she makes my coffee now. Then we go sit in our recliners with our big Rhodesian Ridgeback sitting at our feet. He's 125 pounds. He's a handful. And he lays right between us. And we read our Bibles. We read the same uh, program together. About 15 minutes we read. And, and then we talk a little bit. So really about the first hour, hour and a half of our day. Then I come home for lunch. Then I come home for supper. And then we may have family night or we may watch a movie together. But it's a part of our routine and she's just so happy because it tells her that life is normal and life is is uninterruptible but as a pastor can I tell you how your life can be interrupted Kenneth Hagin got a call at three o'clock one morning a lady in his church said pastor I just woke up and the Lord told me that you have a word for me he said I do Go back to bed. <laughs> now, I'm, I mean, uh, and I don't know, maybe your life's not like this, but one night in the middle of the night, a, a knock came at my door. I got my pants on. I didn't know who it was. It was a state trooper. Well, all our kids were too young to drive at that time, and so they were all in bed, and I, I said, Officer, can I help you? He said, Are you Larry Stockstill? I said, yes, sir. He said, I've got a man at the state capitol chained to the front door at the top of the steps with dynamite around his waist. He's got a button in his hand. He's got his son with the other arm and a machete right up to the neck of his son. And he said he's going to kill his son and he's going to blow up the whole state capitol unless he can talk to you. I said, me. And I heard Melanie say from the bedroom, he's not coming. <laughs> I heard her say it. The officer's got about an 18-inch neck. He said, get your clothes on. We got to go. I go in there and I put my clothes on. It was cold. It was wintertime. I got my big coat on. I get in this, this squad car, a hundred, 110 miles an hour going down I-110. I think he's looking at the signs thinking that was the speed limit or something. We going down to the, we get to the state, to the state capital. 15 cars are there with their floodlights on this guy and they've been waiting on me and they, they escorted me. I mean, I'm reading those states, New Hampshire, Kentucky, Louisiana, you know, going up the stairs and there's a guy with dynamite. I got about 30 feet from the top. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I came out of bed, man. Here I am on the state capitol. And I thought, what if he pushes that button? (laughs) He could blow me to the UEP Long statue. I could be riding that brother (laughs) in a few minutes. I said, "Can can you see dynamite coming? I mean, this is how I felt. 
I just turned around. I said, I tell the officers, I said, but brothers, I recognized him. He was a goofball that had come to our church and he stood up and he prophesied. I mean, prophesied. And I had to stop him. And now he wanted to talk to me. Well, anyway, once I saw who it was, I just went down and I got in the car. And those both policemen were so brave. They just kept on walking right up to him and realized it was flares instead of dynamite. Ain't that my luck right there? And the, the guy, you know, he walked him down and blah, blah, blah. That's the end of the story. But what I'm showing you is how interruptible your life is. And now with a smartphone, you can get a text every 10 minutes. And you're trying to have a conversation. Oh, oh, let me see who that is. Oh, well, well, well that's uh, oh, oh, so and so. Look at that fish he caught. Uh, yeah. And so what were we talking about? And, and, I, and I'm telling you, brothers, mama ain't happy if she doesn't feel this sense of routine in your life. Number four, I made this mistake. And that is about communication issues. This was a mistake. And I'm, I'm, I'm bearing my soul to you. Now I'm telling you the mistakes I made. I didn't know that it was okay for my wife to confront me about something in my life. I didn't know that. I thought that if my wife ever raised an issue about my character, about my life, or my hygiene, or something like anything, I thought it was out of bounds for her to do that, but it's not. She actually loves you. You're, believe it or not, your wife loves you more than anybody in the world and knows you better than anybody in the world. She is your best partner your best friend, your best ally. I mean, if your breath could kickstart a 747 aircraft, you need somebody to tell you that. Say amen. So look up here at me, okay? Something's wrong with me. You can see it. Everybody can see it but me. And y'all are looking at me funny. And finally, Pastor Lane comes up here. And, and I say, hey, what are you doing, man? And he puts his hand up here. And he adjusts my collar. He has not attacked me. He has adjusted me. Because there was something everybody out there could see except me. And that's your wife. She is only trying to adjust the things about you that are obvious to everybody except you. And that's why she's a blessing. And all she needs, and it takes a lot for a wife to confront you. Melanie, she'll go days just thinking about how she's going to say it and trying to find the right time. She'll say, I need to talk to you about something. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd get my defenses up. All right, I'd fold them arms. She'd say, you know, you need to think about changing this in as quiet and respectful tone. But I was a genius. You give me 60 seconds, I can turn it around. So it was really her fault that I had this problem. My sister was a defense attorney. I'd have probably been a lawyer if I wasn't a pastor. 
And I could turn that thing around so fast. And she gets so frustrated because the next thing, she, you know, because the way I'm looking at it, she has offended the great one. The perfect one. She's talking about me, my character, and this and that. And once the Lord showed me that Melanie was my greatest ally, instead of blaming her, I started to say, thank you. Now, I want you to try those two words. Say it. Say, thank you. Let's, it's, that's pretty weak. Try, try it again. Look at your neighbor next to you. Say, thank you. Now, that, that ain't easy. Even, even yesterday, something I forgot, Melanie was leaving in a hurry, and I could tell she was bothered. I said, what's bothering you? She said, well, here's what's bothering me. And she told me something that I had forgotten. And, I, and, and first, you know, my natural reaction years ago would have been, well, now you know what, blah, 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 blah. But I just said, thank you. I'm going to take care of that. And I did. Yesterday morning, I took care of it. And you know what? She thanked me when she got home. She said, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. But that if you'll just learn how to say thank you when she does communicate a frustration and then change. Some of you, she's talked to you a hundred times. About the same thing. I was leaving the shower light on in my shower. I did it for years. And she would talk to me. Hey, you left the shower light on. That's okay. I never changed. Finally, one day she sat down and she said, I need to talk to you. Could you turn the light off in the shower? Now, in my old life, I would have said, I pay the utility bill here. And I will leave the light on in the shower if I want to. But now, what are the two words I say to her? Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been five years. I ain't left the light on since. It's part of my little routine. Boop, it goes off. Now, brothers, I don't know what she's been talking to you about. But if you'll say, thank you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on the top of my list and I'm going to change. Mama is going to start getting happy. Instead of saying it's hopeless, he'll never change. He'll never change. He, she starts seeing just a little bit of change going on inside of you. Now, here's number five, dishonor. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving you the things that make a woman unhappy. And yes, she's still married to you, but she may just be sitting there praying at home that God would give you a, a clue about what's going on. She might feel financial insecurity. She might be lonely. She might have lack of routine. She, she's always distressed. There's no routine in the family. She might have a communication problem and she might feel dishonored. Isn't that what Peter said? Husbands, dwell with your wife according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife. I was in Nigeria a number of years ago, about three or four, and I, ain't nothing on TV in Nigeria, nothing. So I'm in the hotel, man, I'm bored. You know, you read your Bible readings and you pray a while and there's nothing to do. You're waiting on a meeting. So I turned the TV on, there is zero on there, except there was a BBC special on the Queen of England which I'm not interested in. I was looking for a sports event or something. Well, they showed this little girl back in a video. 60 years earlier, Elizabeth became the Queen of England when she was 25 years old, the year I was born, 1953. And they showed the Queen of England when she was just a little woman, 25, sitting on a throne. Her dress was made out of solid gold 
thread. I've seen that dress in the Tower of London. Her crown had nothing but diamonds all the way around it and beautiful jewels, rubies. And they put a mace in her hand with a diamond on top, the Hope Diamond. You can see it in the Tower of London. It's priceless. That thing looks like a tennis ball sitting on top of that mace. You know, uh, that little thing you gave your wife when you got married, don't be too proud of it, really. (laughs) And the Archbishop of Canterbury walks over and he takes that crown and he puts it on top of little Queen Elizabeth, 25 years old, little woman, puts it on her head and he says, Be thou the defender of the Christian faith in the British Empire worldwide. That little girl, like that. That was 1953. Now she's 85. And you know what? They said in 60 years, that woman has never opened a door in public. Grown men break their neck to get doors open in front of her. She hadn't had a driver's license in 60 years. She walks out. Men are standing there and open that door and help her in the back seat and they close that door and wherever she wants to go, they take her. She's the queen of England. And what really spoke to me is that on her 60th anniversary as queen, they set her throne on the banks of the river that goes through London, the Thames River. And a thousand ships sailed up that river in her honor with all of the sailors in their dress whites and saluted a little woman sitting on a chair. And I'm sitting there in that hotel. And the Lord said, that's the way I want you to treat your wife. Just like the Queen of England. You know, if you treat her like the Queen, she'll treat you like the King. I call it the King Doctrine. I learned it from Billy Hornsby, state trooper Billy Hornsby, Louisiana state trooper. And Billy ended up being called into the ministry. He started ARC, which has now planted 500 churches in America. And I'm going to tell you, Billy honors Charlene. Charlene had 90 days to live when they came to Bethany. Hodgkin's lymphoma, dying. And you know God healed that woman. He came home one day with a state trooper car, walked out. She was in the backyard hanging out clothes. He said, Charlene, what are you doing? She said, I feel healed. God healed her for 40 years she lived. And you should have seen how Billy treated Charlene. Everywhere they went, Billy walked with her on his arm just like this. He never walked ahead of her. I see men. They walk 10 feet out in front of their wife, just waving to the adoring masses of people. And their little wife is just walking like this behind them, just like this. Just no honor, no, no honor. He just stepping around. And then he walks through the door, Billy does, and he holds that door open and Charlene walks through the door. I see men come to the door at church. And they go through the panic hardware and they let that door just fall right on their wife. And then I remember watching as a 23-year-old when I came back from Africa, Billy would bring Charlene to the car, usually his squad car, and he'd walk her around to her side and he'd open the door. And he would help her get in and he would close that door. Most of us go get in our car and if our wife's not there, we start blowing the horn at her. 
Now, she's not here, brother. She don't know you're hearing what I'm saying. But I want you to begin to treat her like that queen. Everywhere you go with your wife, I want you to walk alongside of her instead of in front of her at the mall. And then when you come to a door, you open that door for her and you let her go through. Come on, somebody. And then when you get out to your car, walk around to her side. If you've never done it in your whole life, don't even worry about it. Just act like it. Well, that's just normal stuff. You walk around, you open the door for her. And when you pick her up off the parking lot, (laughs) help her get in the car and close the door. It's called honor. And that is what Peter said. If we would honor our wives, we would be blessed. But if we dishonor them, our prayers will be hindered. In fact, when Melanie walks in a room, and I haven't seen her that day, or I've been somewhere, when she walks in a room, I stand up. Because that's my wife walking in the room. Number six, a woman feels unhappy when she feels mistrust. And this one I have not experienced personally, but I'm throwing it in because I know so many men don't understand that their wife is not happy if they take their secretary to lunch. Now, I'm, 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 if you're doing that, I'm pulling the plug on that little practice. Last night, I talked to you about never being alone with a woman. You say, well, my secretary and I, we have a professional relationship. Really? How many times have I heard that as the onset of an affair? But now, put the shoe on the up foot. What if you walked in a restaurant and your wife was bent over the table about 18 inches from her boss and they were just goo-gooing and talking? Now, how would that affect you? You'd walk over there and you'd say, y'all having a good time? Wouldn't you? Now, so don't, don't, don't think that she's supposed to understand. No, she doesn't understand. There's never a reason to take your secretary to lunch or to really even be alone with another woman. Because when your wife starts feeling mistrust, something makes her miserable. One lady told Melanie not too long ago, my husband flirts with every stewardess on a plane and every waitress in a restaurant. He just flirts. He just flirts everywhere, everywhere. And she said, I I, I just feel so awkward. I don't even know how to take it. I I, I feel so weird. And she said, I'm losing my love for him. I've talked to him, but he doesn't respond. Now, and the big deal about mistrust is don't ever lie to your wife. It don't matter, like I said last night, how embarrassing it is. Just tell her the truth. Get it over. Tell her the truth. And that truth will set you free. And that and make yourself accountable to your wife. Melanie knows where I am every day, every hour. When I leave home, I tell her, now I'm going to the office. I'll see you at lunch. I don't, I don't show up at the mall 30 minutes away. And somebody says, I saw your husband at the mall yesterday morning. What? He was at the office. No, he wasn't either. He was at the mall. Well, see, she starts thinking, what's going on? He's supposed to be at the office. He's at the mall. I don't do that. If my plans change, I send her a little text. Hey, I'm headed to the mall. I need to pick up a shirt. I'll still be back for lunch. Well, 
She knows. See, this is just, you say, well, that sounds like bondage to me. Now, let me tell you something about bondage. A train is only free when it's on the tracks. It can get off the tracks, but it ain't going very far. And if I've got tracks with my wife and we have an understanding of how accountable my life is to her, Melanie doesn't worry if I'm 11,000 miles away in Malaysia because I always take somebody with me. We all do better when, when we're watched. Now, here's the last one. I thank you for listening to all seven of these. Are y'all still here? Wave at me if you're still here. Okay. Some of you are saying, my God, I need to get, I need to move in a hotel or something tonight. I'm a, one guy asked me after this session over in Ukraine, he said, brother, can I come sleep with you tonight in the hotel? Now, here's number seven. A woman, and it's the most important one, a woman feels unhappy. If she feels unprotected. If she feels unprotected. Now, brothers, a woman married you so that in a moment of danger, even a moment of being awkward, you, her knight in shining armor, would step between her and whoever was attacking her. You'd even be willing to die for her. That's why she married you. She believes that you would lay down your life in her place. Jesus did for his bride on the cross. He laid down his life. Now that came to me one time on a fast. And I was on a long fast. And on about the 15th day of this fast, the Lord really starts talking to me, man. I get serious when I ain't eating. I get serious about hearing from God. And I remember being in my bedroom, Pastor Todd, and the Lord spoke to me. And he said, you're not covering your wife. And I thought, Lord, what's that mean? Not covering her. He immediately brought me to that scripture in the book of Ruth, where Ruth, the widow, laid at the feet of Boaz, the wealthy benefactor, who's he's threshing his grain and he's sleeping in the, in the granary on a bed. And she laid at his feet and uncovered his feet in the middle of the night. So his feet got cold. And then he leaned up to spread his coat back over his feet. And here's a woman laying right there at his feet. Now, I do not recommend single women to find a husband this way. But then she says, who are you? He said, who are you? It's dark. And the woman is in the threshing floor. She said, I'm Ruth, your handmaid. And then she just said two more words. Cover me. Cover me. And that verse came in my mind just that fast. And the Spirit of God said to me, you're not covering your Wife, she said, cover me. Let your mantle be extended over me. In other words, I'm a widow. I'm broke. I don't have a protector. I don't have anybody to defend me. My husband's dead. I need a man. And she said, please cover me. She was related to him. He actually should have married her by the Levitical rite. But he didn't even know about it. And so he did. He married her. And they ended up having a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. 
the king of Israel. That came from Ruth sitting at his feet that night saying, cover me, cover me, cover me. Your wife is trying to say those words to you. She's trying to tell you that she doesn't want to face the perils and the problems of this world alone. That's why she married you. She wants to feel that you will deliver her, protect her, and even rescue her if she ever needed it. I brought my wife in the bedroom. I said, sweetheart, I just got it. She said, what? I said, the Lord told me I've not been covering you. And God is my witness. I didn't even explain. And big tears came rolling out of those blue eyes. And she batted those eyelashes. I I can tell you where she was standing. I was sitting on the bed looking up at her. She was looking down at me. And those tears started rolling. I didn't even explain it to her. I just said, forgive me for not covering you. But now I get it. I understand. And if I'm in public with her and she feels awkward or uncomfortable in a room or with a particular person, she just looks at me. When our eyes meet, she just mouths those words, cover me. And I walk over there and I step between who, her and whoever it is. And I interrupt the uncomfortableness of my wife. Sometime I'm at church and I look over there and somebody had their finger going at her like that, getting mad at her. And I leave my conversation, Brother Francis. I walk across the church. I say, excuse me. And I walk across the church and I just step between her and whoever it is. I don't say this, but inwardly I'm saying, do you have a problem or are you looking for a problem? (laughs) Are you getting what I'm saying? If somebody comes to the front door, a neighbor, because one of my kids has pulled the fuse out of their air conditioner, which has happened before, (laughs) I don't send Melanie to the door. I go to the door. She would be uncomfortable in that situation, but I'm not. I'm a man. If the school calls and one of my kids is in the principal office, I don't send Melanie. I get in the car, say, I'll take care of this. And I go, it don't matter what it is. If my wife feels uncomfortable about it, she married me so she could stand behind me and let me handle business on whatever I need to. Yeah. Now you're getting that. And and if your wife feels that her man will stand up for her in any situation, man, she going to love you. One of my other men in the Surge Project, Philip Murdoch, down in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Dangerous city. One night he heard a noise downstairs. He got up about 1030, put his pants on. He went down there, and it was a couple of robbers in the kitchen. And they had, they had uh, pistols, both of them. And Philip gets down there, and by the time he got down there, he was in the middle of them. And they said, you've got $50,000 in your bedroom. Go get that money or we're going to kill everybody in this house. And they mean it. They're ruthless in Rio de Janeiro. He said, I don't have any money in my bedroom. Oh, yeah, we've been sir, we've been following you five months. We know you just came home from church. We know you have $50,000 upstairs. You go get that money. And they kept threatening and they were getting louder and louder. 
Philip kept begging him, I'm telling you, I don't have any money. His wife, Renee, had put her robe on. She'd come down the stairs. One of them got the bright idea. And he pointed that gun up the stairs at Renee. He said, if you don't go get that money right now, he said, we're going to rape your wife right here in front of you. Philip stepped between the gun and his wife. And he heard himself say to the man, if you touch my wife, one of us is going to die right here and right now. And he saw that gun begin to wobble. And that man backed up. He grabbed a laptop computer and he started out the door, both of them. And one of them said, if you go to the police, we're coming back and we're going to kill you. And Philip said, that's exactly where I'm going when you leave. I mean, the authority, the Holy Ghost came on Philip. He ain't never seen him again. Five years have gone by. But let me tell you, brothers, you ought to hear Renee tell the story. <laughs> she says, Philip is my hero. And indeed, he was. In the moment that it mattered, he took his stand between the gun and his beloved. Now, I'm talking about protection. And I'm talking about issues tonight that I've experienced. And I bet everyone in this room could say, oh, my Lord, that's me. That's me, too. Or maybe just one of these. But we know that we've maybe failed in some way with our wives, but the Lord still loves us and we've done our best according to maybe our dad didn't do the right way or maybe we, but now we're seeing the Bible way and we're saying, man, I could be a model for my family. My kids, five of my kids are married and I get to watch my sons walk around, open the door for their wife, help them in. You talk about a blessing. I want you to close your eyes with me. I hope I hadn't gone too long. But I believe you came to receive. Now, last night, about 100 men gave their hearts to the Lord. And I don't know, there might not even be anybody still in here that's not quite sure about the Lord in your life. But remember, He did the same thing for you. He took the bullet for you. He stepped between the gun and you because He loves you. And if you're here tonight, you would say, hey, man. If I died tonight, I don't know if I'm right with God, and I need to get forgiveness. You know who you are. If you're sitting here, and that's there's sin in your heart, and you know it's there, and you want to get the sin out of your heart, and you weren't here last night, or maybe you've been thinking about it all day today, and you would say, yes, I need to surrender. There's nobody else paying for your sins. I, there's nobody lined up to pay for your sins. It's Jesus. And Jesus did it, and Jesus loves you, and he's ready to change you. Now, nobody's looking, but if that's you, and you would say, Pastor, include me in a prayer. I need to get myself really right with the Lord. I want you to just slip up your hand. Without hesitation, put up your hand. Say, that's me, all over this room. That's right. Just hold it up high. I see your hand. God bless you there, 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 there. We got more men here tonight getting right with God. Okay, thank God for that. Now, in a minute, I'm going to help you get, get right with the Lord, but keep your heads bowed. How many of you men would say, man, I got some plumbing to do. I got some work based on what I just heard, what I know is in that model man book and what I need to do. I want God to, I want God to do some stuff inside of me like really, really tonight. Raise up your hand if that's you. 
Now I want the guys with their hands raised, stand to your feet. If you raised up your hand and God dealt with you about one of those areas, stand up on your feet. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Boy, how Jesus loves you. He never condemns us. He just enlightens us. He helps us. He showed me my problems. I wonder if all you guys standing with mine just coming up here all around this altar. Sometimes it's good to move from where you are to where you want to be. Even you guys that raise your hand with the first issue, you need to get saved or get right. Come up here. Come up here. Now, see, Mama's not even here tonight. She don't know that you're walking forward because of your own issues. And it's nothing to do with her. Our wives are about 99% great. We're the ones, we're the leader. We're the ones that have the issues and we're asking God to do something about it tonight. What a fantastic, if you can't get near, that's good right there. I just want you to have the experience of, of just, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm coming forward, I'm making a stand. Tonight I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do something tremendous in my life. Close your eyes, guys. All, all the rest of you. It'd do you good to stand if you're still in the building. We're almost done, so you might as well just stand. Close your eyes, and I want you to think about the day you got married. Remember when you looked down that aisle? And she looked beautiful. She had that veil over her face. And she only had one man she wanted to protect her, and that was you. Man, as time goes by, how many failures we can have. Maybe you've been divorced a couple of times. Now you're married to a third woman. And now you're wondering, you know what, is this one going to work? Yes, it is. If you begin to put these seven principles in practice and you'll begin to honor her, you'll get a routine instead of being like a Mexican jumping bean, jumping around everywhere. And you'll begin to sit down with her and, and talk and, and, and not be just a company, but be companion to her. And, and you'll get some financial security going on. And you'll, and you'll step up for her one time when somebody's threatening her. You'll step between her and that problem. And man, you watch what God's going to do. Look at her. When you looked into her eyes with that veil over her face, that's the picture I want in your mind. Put your hand over your heart now. And I want you to ask Jesus. He knows how to love a bride better than anybody. He loves the church as his bride. Why not be a model man in America when people are just throwing marriages away left and right? Why not be like my daddy, 63 years of marriage before mama died with Alzheimer's. He was her primary caregiver. She couldn't even remember his name. You love your wife that much? When you're 84 and she looks at you and doesn't know who you are, you love her that much? Yeah. Ask God to put a love in your heart for that woman. Father, I just pray for the men. They came tonight. We came tonight, Lord, to get family right, to get marriage right. And in this conference, Lord, we're closing it out with just this moment where you turn the water into wine. Just like you did at the first marriage. Jesus, you changed the hearts of these men back to a love for that lady behind the veil. 
That lady that looked so great dressed in white that day. That lady who left everybody else and every other boyfriend from high school and everybody so she could just put all of her hopes in this one guy that he would provide for her and protect her. And he would lead her to the house of God. And I ask you to bless these men. I want you men to call your wife's name out to the Lord. Glenda. Joanne, whatever her name is, and say, Lord, bless my wife. Lord, forgive me if I've not honored her. Forgive me if I've not covered her. Forgive me if I haven't talked to her and been a companion to her. Just ask God to forgive you, and he'll do it. He'll do it. He loves you, man. He knows it. You're here to change. Lord God, bless these men as they make this statement and as they make this decision tonight. May they be blessed. May every church in Lafayette be blessed because of this session tonight and let homes here in Lafayette be never the same generations from now let them look back on this night and say that is when God changed my whole family and I thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus and come on somebody let's give the Lord all the praise and the glory for it Pastor Ty.